Welcome to the Justin Peters Program, where we're searching the scriptures to see if these things are so, studying to show ourselves approved, rightfully dividing the word of truth so that we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here's your host, Justin Peters. Program, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you are doing well, and I want to thank you for joining me for this installment of the Justin Peters program. And uh, I want to apologize from the get-go. There may be some background noise in today's program because, uh, once again, uh, I'm back in the our little RV, and we do have our heater running, so that's probably what you hear in the background. I do apologize for that. Uh, Lord willing, once we get into our home, and I get all my equipment back, uh, the the quality of the audio recording should be better. Well, before we begin, I do want us to continue our study into hermeneutics, but before we begin, I uh, thought I'd share this with you. I came across a, a news article that caught my attention, and it actually made me laugh a little bit. The title of the news article is, Scientists Recreate What May Be Life's First Spark. And I'll read just a little excerpt of this to you. It says this. It says, Scientists in a lab used a powerful laser to recreate what might have been the original spark of life on Earth. The researchers, the researchers zapped clay in a chemical soup with the laser to stim- simulate the energy of a speeding asteroid smashing into the planet. They ended up creating what can be considered crucial pieces of the building blocks of life. The findings do not prove that this is how life started on Earth about four billion years ago, and some scientists were unimpressed with the results, but the experiment does bolster the long-held theory. These findings suggest that the emergence of terrestrial life is not the result of an accident, but a direct consequence of the conditions on the primordial Earth and its surroundings. The researchers concluded in the study published Monday in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the laser zapping produced all four chemical bases needed to make RNA, a simpler relative of DNA, the blueprint of life. From these bases, there are many still... I love this. I love this part. From these bases, bases, there are still many mysterious steps that must happen for life to emerge. But this is a potential starting point in that process. So, this article admits that there are still many mysterious steps to get from the basic building blocks of RNA to life. Well, that is probably the understatement of the year. Uh, Just because you have a few basic ingredient components of RNA, uh, this is ribonucleic acid, if you remember your high school biology, you are still light years from having actual RNA, just from having the building blocks, you're still light years from having actual RNA. You know, if I put some flour, eggs, butter, and sugar on a table, uh, they would never assemble themselves together into a cake. I could take some metal, some glass, some rubber, throw them all into a big pile, but I would not come out with a 69 Dodge Charger no matter how long I waited. Don't you find it interesting that the best very best, most knowledgeable scientists in the world have yet to create from scratch a single strand of RNA or DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, 
uh, much less a single living cell, much less a jellyfish, much less a salamander, much less a, a dolphin, much less a Shetland pony or a, or a yellow lab, much less a human. So with all of man's thousands of years of acquired and accumulated knowledge and under carefully controlled settings, well, with all the settings just right, under carefully controlled settings, we cannot create a single strand of self-replicating uh, RNA or DNA or a single cell. But we are supposed to believe that life and all of its varied splendor just created itself. That inanimate objects, by the way, where did even these inanimate objects come from? You know, the, the scientists have no explanation. Where did matter come from? They have no explanation for that. But these inanimate objects somehow assembled themselves. They began to synthesize energy, then self-replicate, and through millions and millions and millions, if not trillions, of, of mutations, genetic mutations, uh, grew into the millions of different species of, of life that we see on Earth today. Bacterial life, fungal life, plant life, animal life. And by the way, genetic mutations always result in a loss of information. Not a gain, a loss of information. So we're, we're, we're to believe this? Really? This is what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 1.18. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, the other day, my wife and I pulled up to a, a Lowe's, Lowe's Home Depot. Not a Lowe's Home Depot. We pulled up to a Lowe's Home Improvement Store. And just as we pulled into the to the parking spot there, handicapped parking spot, because I am handicapped, uh, pulled in, and just as we did, there was this old old man walking out in front of the truck, and he was out in, in front of our truck going to his vehicle. He was he was walking with two canes, um, one in each hand, obviously hunched over his back, hunched over uh, with age, barely moving. I mean, he's really really slow. And he saw me get out of the crutch and get my crutches, trying to you know get my crutches on. And so he noticed that crutches, and he looked at me. He said, "He said, looks like we're both kind of slow, but it beats the alternative." And uh, you know, when he said that, I mean, that's a wide open door, you know. So you you got to take those opportunities. And I, I said, uh, I said, you're right. We we are slow, but um, but you know, one of these days. We're going to both meet that alternative. One day we will all die. And he just looked at me without saying anything. Uh, and so after a little pause, I said, but if, if we will repent of our sins, excuse me, if we will repent of our sins, turn from our sins and place our trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we don't have to fear that day. And he just continued to stare at me. And so I introduced myself to him. I said, my name is Justin. What's your name? And he replied, Jim. And so then I asked him, I said, Jim, when that time does come for you, do you know where you will go? And just he, he immediately he got angry and he got defensive. And he said, I don't believe in God. He's never done anything for me. And I said back to him, I said, uh, Jim, deep down in your heart of hearts, you do believe in God. You know there is a creator. And he said, don't you shove your religious blank uh, down my throat. 
And, you know, for those of you who may be thinking, wow, Justin, that was really arrogant for you to say to him, tell him that he does believe in God when he just said he didn't. Well, the fact of the matter is, Jim does believe in God. Everybody believes in God. Uh, of course, there are some people who call themselves atheists, but the Bible gives very clear testimony in Romans chapter 1 that man is without excuse. The creation itself screams that there is a creator. And those who say that they don't, do not believe in God, what they are doing is they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, they know the truth, but they are suppressing it. And so um, I do not believe in atheists. I don't think there is such an animal. Uh, there, there are no atheists. Everybody, everybody believes in God. Uh, they know that there is a creator. General revelation, creation, screams that, gives abundant testimony to that. So um, it's really sad. You know, it's sad to see Jim because he is so old. I mean, he he had to be he had to be pushing ninety years old, if not ninety. I mean, he was an old old man. And uh, really sad to see him so angry and so bitter and and so um, steeped in his suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. So, um, if you think about it, pray for Jim. Pray that God will send somebody else into his path to uh, to tell him the truth, and uh, pray that his heart would be softened to the gospel uh, before it's too late. And given his age, it won't be long before it is too late for him. Well, uh, last week we talked about the hermeneutical pitfall of individualizing. This is when we take certain verses in Scripture and we read ourselves into those verses when those verses were not talking about us, not written to us. And I gave the example of Henry Blackaby doing this in his book, Experiencing God. talked about how uh, he, um, when his daughter Carrie had cancer, he and his wife were reading scripture and they came to John chapter 11 verse 4 and this is when Jesus said uh, this sickness is not unto death and Blackaby says we took this promise well the first problem is that is not a promise that was simply a statement from Christ it's not a promise for us but he said we took this promise and we uh, we believe that was a word for Carrie and sure enough Carrie did not die of her cancer she was apparently uh, um through treatment or whatever chemo, whatever it was, radiation, she she um, came through her cancer. Okay, which of course a lot of people do, but uh, that verse is not talking about Carrie Blackaby. Jesus was talking about Lazarus, not Carrie Blackaby. So that's a it's a very common pitfall into which people fall, uh, a very common mistake that people make. And so we talked about that and and how we've got to avoid doing that. We cannot read ourselves into every statement or, or promise in the scripture when we are we were not in mind when it was written you know for example it's uh, God parted the sea for Moses but I should not assume that if I were to walk down to the banks of the Mississippi River and hold my crutches up in the air God's going to part the Mississippi River for me did it happen in biblical history for Moses and the uh, Hebrews yes it did is that normative today? No, absolutely not. Now, we have to keep in mind that there there is a difference between the portions of Scripture that are that are narrative 
and the portions of scripture that are prescriptive. In other words, narrative, uh, it's recording real events, but it's not prescribing something. So we have to be very careful that we don't, that we don't read ourselves into a verse of scripture that was not intended for us, not talking about us, uh, was not even a promise necessarily. So we've got to take all these things into consideration. More general statements of scripture, um, um, you know, John 3.16, does that apply to us? Sure it does. Romans 10.9 and 10, does that apply to us? Sure it does. Uh, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, does that apply to us? Sure it does. But we should not assume that just because something, an event happened in scripture, it is to be considered normative for us today. Uh, God made an axe head float in the Old Testament. I haven't seen any floating axe heads lately. God made a donkey talk in Numbers chapter 22. But I haven't seen any talking donkeys lately. And if you have, then you probably need to stop sipping on the suds. So that's kind of the that's the problem, uh, the pitfall of individualizing. Now we have two programs left with our study of hermeneutics, and this week we're we're done with the pitfalls. We're we're through with those. So now we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about appropriation. What we do with what we have learned. And next week, Lord willing, we will talk about proclamation, proclaiming the truth that we have learned. Uh, but this week, appropriation. Appropriation. What do we do with the knowledge that we have? Okay, appropriation. The accumulation of head knowledge is a good thing. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. So head knowledge is a good thing. Head knowledge, however, is not an end. It's not an end. It is a means to an end. Uh, head knowledge is not the end. It's a means to an end. And, and the end uh, to which head knowledge is, is the love of and worship of God. That is the end. Love of God, worship of God, service to God. Of course, all these things are very closely related. Knowledge of God and love for God are not, as many suppose, mutually exclusive. A lot of people think, well, you have your head knowledge over here in this compartment, and over here in this other compartment, you've got your love for God, your emotional feelings for God. But that is not the picture that the Bible paints at all. Uh, quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. Let me read this to you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Love that verse. Paul says, I pray that your love, your love may abound so Paul is wanting their, their love for God to abound, to increase. And how does it do that? He says, still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge of God and love for God, far from being mutually exclusive, are in reality complementary. And notice, too, that Paul includes the word discernment. When we are discerning, when we exercise discernment, and um, even even if discernment is not our spiritual gift, and contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not my gift, but we can still exercise discernment. So when we are discerning, when we exercise discernment, 
That is evidence that we genuinely love God, in that we want to know God. And we want to know God not as how we think He should be, uh, not as how we feel He ought to be, not as how everyone else believes Him to be, not as how church tradition would portray Him, but as He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. So when we exercise discernment, when we search the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so, we show God that we love Him enough to know Him rightly, and we submit to Him as the sovereign God who has created us in His image, not a God that we have created after our own image. So this head knowledge, uh, derived from a right understanding of God's Word, uh, which is in turn derived from proper hermeneutics, proper Bible interpretation, this head knowledge should inform all of our decisions. Uh, it should be the final authority in all that we believe and all that we do. All that we do, it, we have got to appropriate this knowledge. Let me read to you James chapter 1, verse 22. James 1, verse 22 says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So, all of these Christians, or professing Christians, who merely hear the word, but do not appropriate it. James says they are deluded. So, a genuine Christian is going to be one who hears the word and then appropriates what he hears, puts it into action, lives it out, uh, lets that knowledge inform his decisions. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says this. The Apostle Paul writes and says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. It's not enough to just receive Christ or just ask him into your heart. The one who has truly received the Lord Jesus will walk in him. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Live your faith out appropriate the knowledge that you have. Let it inform your decisions. Let it let it uh, be the guiding principle in your priorities, in your affections. I want to give you an example of how, for many people, there's a real disconnect between their knowledge of God and their love for God. There's a real disconnect in uh, taking what they know and then appropriating it. In March of this year, 2014, I was made aware of something that was about to transpire at a Baptist church with which I am familiar and at which I have preached. I'm not going to tell you which Baptist church this is. I have preached, goodness, in probably over a hundred different, I'd say easily over a hundred different Baptist churches, so I'm not going to name which one it is. But um, in March, I was made aware that in the, in the coming month, that April, this church was participating in Holy Week services. Easter was in April this year, and uh, this church was participating in Holy Week services with some of the other large churches 
in this particular city. These churches included a Methodist church, Presbyterian church, and an Episcopalian church. And what was happening is that each day of the week, of, of Holy Week, the le week leading up to each Easter, each, each day of the week, these churches were having midday services, noon services, um, at all these churches. And the pastors of these churches were doing sort of a round-robin kind of thing in which the pastor of one church uh, would uh, preach at the church that was hosting the service on that particular day. For example, maybe the Presbyterian pastor would preach at the service which was being held at the Methodist church. And so the, the, the pastors doing these round-robin things and of course the congregants uh, from these different churches would come over and you know, all gather together for these um, kind of ecumenical services. Well, I saw in the newsletter that uh, the preacher of the Baptist church, the pastor of the Baptist church, invited the pastor of the Episcopal church to preach at the service that was being held at the Baptist church that day. So the the pastor of the Episcopal church came over to the Baptist church to preach the message for that service. And the pastor's name was listed on this uh, newsletter that I saw. And I uh, the pastor's name of the Episcopal Church, well, I'm not going to give you her name, but let's call her Sally. That's right, her name. And I looked at it, I just stared at it. Okay, the first problem is that she is a she. She is a pastor, or I think she's actually called rector. But uh, that's the first problem. So in direct contradiction, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, to Titus chapter 1, I believe verses 5 through 9, Sally is a pastor of a quote-unquote church. This should have been enough. This should have been enough for her to never have been invited in the first place. Or if somehow her invitation was some mistake, just some oversight, which I find very hard to believe, but uh, even if it was some mistake, Oversight that should have been enough for her to be disinvited as soon as people realized she was a she. Uh, disinvited from filling the pulpit and taking a position of spiritual authority in this Baptist church or any other church for that matter. Your friends, men and women are of equal value before God. No question about that. We are of equal value before God. But we do have different roles. And women are simply biblically excluded from having a position of spiritual leadership or authority in any church. They're excluded from that. And uh, I, I might add, at least when, that is, uh, when men are involved, they are excluded from having... Um, any position of spiritual leadership or authority in the church. And um, now, can a woman teach a woman's Sunday school class? Certainly, absolutely, that would be perfectly biblical. But but uh, when you're talking about uh, mixed company with men and women are in a class, or the the, um, the 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 church body as a whole, women are excluded from this. You know, and um, that's just the way God has set it up. And and I would add that there is no greater human position of spiritual authority than when a man gets up and preaches the word of God. 
when he preaches the word of God. That that is that is a position of tremendous spiritual authority and, and tremendous responsibility. So I, I saw this and that that was the first thing, you know, what in the world? But then just out of sheer morbid curiosity, I went to the church's website, the Episcopal Church's website, and I looked at the website and Sally has no testimony of conversion, none whatsoever. Uh, I actually called her and uh, I, I talked to her personally and said I was just inquiring about what she and the church believed. And I asked her, you know, about some of her beliefs. I asked her specifically about the exclusivity of the gospel. And uh, she told me that she believes that good, quote-unquote, good Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus are all God's children. And so she doesn't even believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved. So this woman is not a Christian. She's not... She's not converted, and um, then I went to the uh, I went to the website. Uh, I looked at the section that says uh, that's entitled "What We Believe." That segment of the church's website, and under that, I read the following. This is this is under the Episcopal Church's website. Under the title, get this: under the title, LGBT in the church. Lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgenders in the church. Uh, this is their, this is part of their statement of belief. Let me read this to you. It says this: In 1976, the General Convention of the Episcopal Church declared that homosexual persons are children of God, who have a full and equal claim with all other persons upon the love, acceptance, and pastoral concern and care of the church. Since then, faithful Episcopalians have been working toward a greater understanding and radical inclusion of all God's children. Along the way, the Episcopal Church has garnered a lot of attention, but with the help of organizations such as Integrity USA, the Church has continued its work toward full inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Episcopalians. In 2003, the first openly gay bishop was consecrated. In 2009, General Convention resolved that God's call is open to all. And in 2012, a provisional right of blessing for same-gender relationships was authorized. And discrimination against transgender gender persons in the ordination process was officially prohibited. To our lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender brothers and sisters, the Episcopal Church welcomes you. This is in their statement of belief. And this, this is the, this is the person, the the woman, that had been invited to come and preach at a Baptist church, preach at a church that at least professes to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, professes to believe in the the uh, the lordship of Christ and the authority of Scripture, and she's been invited to to come in. Uh, this woman is not a Christian, and the Episcopal denomination is completely and totally apostate. And this really grieved me. Uh, so I, I, I called the pastor of the Baptist Church, and I, I talked to him, and he told me that he was not thrilled with it. But uh, when I told him that he needs to disinvite her, he balked at that. And this was this was a couple of weeks before the the 
the service was scheduled to happen. So I, I talked to him on the phone a couple weeks beforehand. But when I said he should, I, I said, I said, um, I said, Pastor, you you should disinvite her. Now, this can't happen. And he balked at it. He said that if he disinvited her, he said this whole town would come apart. It would cause such a disruption. He was afraid of how people would react to it, you know, and the people react in the in the in the town to it. And um, he and a, another man in the church uh, told me, uh, their comment both to me was, uh, "We do not want to stick a finger in her eye, in Sally's eye, the pastrix, I guess, of the Episcopalian Church." So we don't want to stick a finger in her eye, but we are okay with sticking a finger in God's eye. Uh, Psalm 138, verse 2, God says, I hold my name and my word above all things. God takes his word very, very seriously. He holds it above all things. God is holy. His holiness is white hot. And he demands that his word be handled rightly. It, it be rightly divided. And God takes takes his name and his word very, very seriously. His holiness very seriously. Remember Uzzah? When um, the, the Hebrews were walking along with the Ark of the Covenant and the oxen that were carrying the, the uh, Ark stumbled and Uzzah was walking beside it and just undoubtedly, instinctively, without even thinking, Uzzah just reached up to steady the Ark and God killed him. God struck him dead. You think God isn't holy? Uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, when they lied about their property, their possessions, lied to to the apostles, and God killed them. Remember that? And it struck fear in the church? Where, Where is that fear now? Where, where is the fear that we have of our God? Where, where is the, 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 the obedience, the respect, the, the reverence? Oh, our services are very reverent, you know, that, well, not if you don't obey the word of God, not if you don't obey what is written right there in black and white. You see, dear friends, we've got to appropriate our knowledge, and if we don't appropriate that, then, then our knowledge, our head knowledge of, of the word of God is doing us no good. When that, when that happened, when that came out in the newsletter that this Sally was going to be invited to speak at the, um, communion, uh, not communion service, but the Holy Week service. When that came out in the in the newsletter, in the bulletin or whatever it was, every man in that church, in that Baptist church, every single man in that church should have been lined up outside of the pastor's office confronting him about this. Where were they? Where were they? And And I would say also that what happened by allowing Sally to come and preach that was the worst possible thing for Sally. The worst possible thing to do. Uh, those of you who have heard my seminar, you've heard me say that uh, that the most hateful thing we can do for someone is to know the truth, but don't tell them. The pastor of this Baptist church, he knew the truth. He knew that this woman was not qualified to preach, A, from her gender, and B, She's not converted. She's lost as a ball in high weeds. Uh, and yet, 
he allowed her to come and preach. It was the worst possible thing to do for her. He should have said, um, at the very least, said, you know, uh, somehow this this slipped through our fingers here and this was scheduled, but Sally, we can't allow this. We can't allow you to come because you're not qualified to do what you're going to do. And and the pastor should have said, you know, and I, I care about you and I, I care about you enough to tell you the truth. This, this woman needs to be, she needs to be evangelized. She needs to hear the gospel. He should have sat down with her and shared her the gospel, confronted her in her sin and told her that apart from repentance, repentance of sin, I mean, and she's, she's sinning continuously every single day by the fact that she's who she is, that she's past her, pastrix, whatever. But he, he should have confronted her in her sin and, and shared the gospel, shared the gospel with her. But to the best of my knowledge, that was not done. Now, the pastor of the Baptist Church told me that they were going to try to do something for next year, you know, try to change things that this this doesn't happen for next year. Well, well that's too late. You had a golden opportunity to do the right thing beforehand, and he didn't do it. And to the best of my knowledge, this, this woman uh, was never confronted by anybody in, in the Baptist Church to tell her that she's lost and, and she's a sinner in need of a Savior. And also, this, this situation was the perfect opportunity to show the congregants of, of that Baptist church to let them see doctrine in action. It was the perfect opportunity to see doctrine applied, the appropriation of our knowledge. Talk about a teachable moment. I mean, this was served up on a silver platter. This was a softball sitting on the tee just waiting to be hit out of the park. Not only for the congregants, not only for the people of the Baptist Church, but people of the Episcopal Church, and uh, for everyone in that community, because undoubtedly this would have made news in this relatively small town. Certainly would have made news, probably would have made the paper, but what a great opportunity for people to see truth in action, to see doctrine applied. And this would have honored God. Dear friends, it is... It is never the wrong thing to do to follow Scripture. Because anytime we obey Scripture, God is honored in that. He is glorified in that. This would have been the, the, the thing that would have pleased God. But it wasn't done. We were, uh, we were too afraid. I say we, metaphorically speaking. But, but uh, these people in the Baptist Church were too afraid to do the right thing, too afraid of what man would have thought, how man would have reacted, more fearful of man than fearful of God. And again, this church claims fidelity to God's word. I've heard the pastor preach about how we should study and obey the Bible. And yet he did not, even when confronted about it. And, you know, I I will readily admit that, that all of us, myself included, you know, we don't have everything figured out. There are, I tell people all the time, there are things in the Bible I do not fully understand. There's nothing in the Bible I don't believe. But there are things in the Bible I do not fully understand. That All of us could say that, must say that. I'm glad that Deuteronomy 29, 29 is in the Bible. The secret things belong to the Lord. However, the Bible is abundantly clear on 
many, many, many things. And there is no question about these things. There is no question about this uh, this example that I gave you. There's no question what the right thing uh, was to do. No question about that. So even when this pastor had had a chance two weeks ahead of the game, two weeks notice to do the right thing, he chose not to do it. He deliberately chose to disobey Scripture. This is the problem with so many professing Christians. We profess our belief in inerrancy. We, pro- we profess our belief in the deity of Christ and his lordship. We profess faith in the Bible. We profess faith in all of these things. We, we say that we believe the Bible until it becomes inconvenient. The Bible is great until it becomes inconvenient. And then it's not so great anymore. When the Bible charges us to take a stand that may cost us in some way, or may against uh, go against some societal norms, or may upset some of the donors in the church, ooh, or if it goes against some long-held traditions, then it's not so great. The Bible is great, sadly, for many people until it becomes inconvenient, and then it's not so great anymore. I close with this words of our Savior, Lord and Savior Christ, John chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That is sobering, is it not? Who is the one who loves Christ? The one who keeps his commandments. The one who keeps them when it's convenient. The one who keeps them on easy issues like abortion, homosexuality. You know, those are easy, those are gimme. No. The one who has the commandments of Christ and keeps them, obeys them, especially when it may be a little bit difficult to do so, especially when it may cost us to do that. Jesus says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. So, dear friends, when we consider our love for God, uh, don't think of our of your love for God primarily in terms of feelings and emotions. Are those right and appropriate? Certainly they are. Certainly they are. Uh, when I think of what Christ did for me in saving me from my sins um, and how wretched I was and how undeserving of mercy I was and yet he gave it to me anyway, that overwhelms me. That overwhelms me. Uh, but in addition to feelings and emotions, if you want to get a good, if you want to take a good temperature of your love for God, uh, 
Look at your life. Do you obey Him? Do you obey the commandments of Christ? He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. How much do you love Christ? Well, how much do you obey Him? Do you obey Him just on the easy things? Or do you obey Him even when it costs you something? Even when it costs you the approval of friends and family members? Even even when it costs you uh, maybe your job? Those of you who heard my program several months ago about Jim Hammond, young man who is a youth minister at the Baptist Church in uh, Fort Stockton, Texas. And he lost his job. Why? He lost his job because he took a stand against his church having Don Piper come and preach at it. The man who says he went and spent 90 minutes in heaven. Fabricated, made-up story, completely contrary to scripture. And Jim Hammond took a stand. And um, he was fired for it. He lost his job. He and his wife and his two boys out of a job. That's a man who loves Christ. Because he has the commandments of Christ and he kept them even when it cost him something. So, head knowledge is good, dear ones. We should all strive to attain it. We should all study to show ourselves approved unto God. However, what is really important is what we do with that knowledge. How do we appropriate it? The appropriation of what we have learned. I hope this program has been helpful to you, dear ones. Thank you again for joining me. And uh, uh, Lord willing, we will be back next week and we will talk about the proclamation of the truth of what we have learned. So until then, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to the Justin Peters program. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or would like to invite him to come and speak at your church or conference, contact him through his website, justinpeters.org. That's justinpeters.org.